Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Was the great horror and fantasy author H.P. Lovecraft really a paranormal unbeliever? Assuming that he was, did he wish that there was something beyond the material world? Why do some of his stories from the 1920s and 30s expound so well upon the multiverse theory, which wasn't proposed in physics until the 1950s? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 431st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and Ben is in the midst of his commute from classes in Boston, and we'll try to, well, I don't know if he's going to call him from the train. He said he has a lot of homework tonight, so we'll see what happens. But in any case, Ben will be back with us regularly starting in May when his semester ends. In the meantime, he is preparing for uh, his uh, career in broadcasting. And uh, you can listen to him also on WERS-FM in Boston uh, at certain times. Uh, it, the schedule kind of changes. That's a music uh, show, but he's one of the DJs on there. He's learning that into the business as well as the talk show end, too. So uh, we'll keep you posted on that. BehindTheParanormal.com. Our website has uh, mentions uh, more or less when his schedule is on. Uh, okay, so uh, before we welcome our guest, let's find out who won last week's contest question. We, had, we do have a contest question when the Ben is with us, uh, because I can handle it more easily. The question was, in European folklore, what does it mean when a dog howls three times in quick succession? Many tried, but only one succeeded. Sean Melnick of Brookline, Massachusetts, was the, uh, was the guy who got the answer right. And the answer is, three howls from a dog in quick succession mean that a woman is going to die. So I guess the lesson here is, if you're a lady and you need a friend, don't buy a basset hound. And uh, I guess according to the legend, too, it, it goes on, if you hear a dog bark twice in quick succession, a man is going to die. However, uh, if the dog barks with his back to you, that's good luck. I can see why. All right. So now to our guest. Do we have our guest? Yes. We do. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Producer. Niels Hobbs is a marine biologist living in Providence, Rhode Island, the hometown of the great 20th century writer of horror and fantasy fiction, Howard Phillips, better known as H.P. Lovecraft. Niels has been active in studying the amazing variety of bizarre sea creatures in our oceans for nearly as long as he's been reading weird tales. And he says that's no coincidence. Currently, he is a doctoral student and instructor in the biology department at Miskatonic, I mean, uh, the University of Rhode Island. Uh, recently, he and some friends and colleagues decided to resurrect the old Necronomicon, a literary convention dedicated to Lovecraft in the heart of Providence. That will uh, take place this August. And we want to have him on several times to, uh, as we uh, prepare for that. Uh, it now stands to be the largest gathering of Lovecraftian devotees ever assembled. And that's saying a lot. Niels Hobbs, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, I just want to get our audio. Yeah, there you go. There we go. Okay, fine. Very good. Uh, Niels, we're glad we finally uh, finally got you there. Uh, there were a couple of yeah. uh, bumps in the road. But however, we got you tonight, and that's all that counts. For those who don't know much about Lovecraft, uh, I'd love to tell you about uh, him myself, folks, because uh, he was a distant cousin of ours, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let our guest do that. Niels, tell us about Lovecraft the Man. Well, I mean, there's, there's, he was a remarkably complex individual, so uh, it's not an easy question to answer. But I think one of the most important things was that he's I think, easily the most 
um, prolific and influential uh, imaginative fiction author that uh, America has produced since Ed Brown Poe. Um, and in fact, I, I think the rate at which his um, pop culture fame creeps around the world, he would almost be at the point where he could actually eclipse Brown Poe. Hmm. Yeah, I think we might uh, have to. You're kind of fading in and out there, Niels. Uh, why don't we um, um, we'll try, try it again? Okay. So our producer will try and call you right back. Well, in the meantime, folks, uh, Lovecraft, of course, uh, was well known to, to me. Uh, he was a um, uh, pretty much a lifelong resident of Providence. There was a point where he actually braved the uh, stormy seas of marriage and moved to New York City. But uh, he was soon back in Providence a few years later and was able to uh, continue his writing career. He uh, never considered himself a professional writer. He was a, a fellow who loved uh, the old uh, uh, colonial neighborhoods on um, Providence's east side and College Hill. And he was a man who loved uh, the seaside, although he hated to eat fish. But he's, he's generally known as sort of a, his, his own most interesting character, a uh, biographer has called him. Uh, he was um, uh, sort of an old, from an old Yankee family, as am I, and he was sort of uh, a fellow who uh, he didn't like um, a lot of a lot of the things that were going on. And this is in the 1930s. And he was born in 1890, died in 1937, and uh, at the age of 46. And uh, but not before he left some of the most remarkable fiction uh, ever written. Uh, do we have? Uh, yes, we have him back. Okay, we got him back. Let's try it again. Okay. okay. All right. Apologies. Oh no! So, well, no, you, you didn't. Uh, unless the phone company is uh, jamming our signal somehow. <laughs> anyway, um, so um, and for our local listeners, uh, as I, I was just telling them, Lovecraft came from an old Yankee family and resented Rhode Island's uh, immigrants. Among them, the French Canadians, of course, which this area is full of. Uh, but after spending time in Quebec, he gained a profound respect for the people there because, uh, unlike the Americans, they were so faithful to their history and culture. So later in life, he wrote to a correspondent that he could, quote, no longer consider Woonsocket or Central Falls wholly foreign. A high compliment from HPL. So, Niels, yeah, exactly. uh, what was so special about Lovecraft's fiction? Uh, you know, I think he he had a, a remarkable way of blending sort of purple prose with his knowledge of local history and folklore and sort of reimagining some of the the imaginative fiction that came before him from uh, from various English authors, uh, Dunsany and Macon and things like that, and sort of developed his own kind of niche in that pre-existing literary genre uh, that really kind of set the stage for many authors to come after that. As much as he was influenced by the, those authors prior to him, he certainly um, became a significant in, in influence for so many authors since. I mean, Stephen King, Clive Barker, all of these authors all point to Lovecraft as one of their primary influences. Sure. So what, uh, well, I think one of the things he did certainly uh, from uh, <clears throat> the point of view of many people, too, is is not just uh, write uh, original stories. that they, ex- they were extraordinarily original. He got past the old ghosts and vampire themes that had been used for so long. And he got into whole new areas, and uh, that's why uh, it's of interest to our audience, perhaps, because he got into areas that um, might have to do with uh, oh, a very sort of um, advanced interpretation of the paranormal, even though he himself didn't believe in it. He, um, 
came up with uh, ancient gods who used to rule the earth and uh, somehow wanted or always trying to come back. And of course, that harks back to the the business with the ancient aliens, if you believe in that sort of thing. But never we believe it or not, it's fun to th- fun to think about and fun to talk about. And he wrote wrote about that sort of thing. Really, the first one to do so. And so, um, what what, uh, what paranormal themes did he use? You know, from from that point of view. You know, I, I think uh, his his view of of the paranormal was one, and, and again, this is his strength that makes him really stand out. Is it was very cosmic scale paranormal view. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, was a huge fan of sort of the latest science of astronomy and physics, and that allowed him uh, he, he could draw on that knowledge base to develop this pantheon of gods, as say that that were just so much larger than any earthbound gods that you know had pro- previously been developed, whether as actual religions or fictional tales. Uh, so his his scope of that was truly a universe standing. Um, set of really all-powerful gods, and, and not gods that any right, you know, sane human being would ever worship. Right. I've encountered several of those in history, I think, from my own point of view. But no, that, that's very true. There were, there were, uh, and again, not, not just the God things, but, but sort of, if you might want to say, parallel worlds, dream worlds, uh, in his, in his, the fantasy oh, kinds of, uh. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and that's, I mean, you, you, you make a good point. I mean, a lot of people focus on his, his sort of his horror tales, you know, the, the Cthulhu mythos that's called, where it really just these awful, awful beasties. But he also wrote a whole huge set of stories that are, are sometimes called the dream cycles or the, the mm. dreamland tales, where they're almost just straightforward uh, fantasy fiction set in these dream worlds. Where you could go and essentially do things in remarkable crumbling seats and the catch pattern and things like that, uh, and and this all kind of comes out of his very strong connection in in sleep based uh, you know thoughts and dreams and such. Yeah, he based so a number of stories on dreams, didn't he? Right. Yeah, many. And and he he credits his subconscious as actually being the inspiration for many of his tales. Well, that's it. And I might want to point out, too, that anyone who's listening who loves New England history or, or the colonial architecture or any of this kind, uh, Lovecraft is for you, because even if you don't enjoy the the, the, the uh, fictional themes, the paranormal or, or horror themes, uh, certainly you'd enjoy his... Um, he was a born tour guide in print. I mean, it, it certainly uh, he loved the uh, the colonial architecture of New England. Almost all the... Sto- not, well, yeah, I'd say uh, probably almost all the stories are set... In New England, uh, Vermont, Massachusetts, and especially Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and the um, the themes have um, uh, a lot, bring a lot of pleasure to those who are interested in the in history because he brings. I remember particularly the, the uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is set uh, right in Providence, and um, he brings in a lot of people from history uh, into the story because it, it spans several centuries. It's 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 great stuff, uh, even if you don't necessarily enjoy the, the paranormal stuff. Now, now, now the the funny thing is that. People wonder, this might help explain why my kids are the way they are, especially my usual cohort this evening, Ben, who's uh, on his way back from school in Boston at the point, at this point, that, uh, you know, while most people were reading Peter Rabbit or Benjamin Bunny, I was reading, uh, the, uh, the Cats of Ulthar and, uh, Lovecraft stories right. like that, uh, uh, the White Ship and things of that kind. So yeah, maybe, yeah, hey, exactly. maybe that explains those, a lot. Some of those alternate some of those alternate dimension stories that he wrote about, the Dreamland stories, are are totally you know good 
children's folklore stories. I mean, they're, they're certainly not ones you might want to read to your five-year-old, but, you know, to your seven or eight-year-old, I think that they'd make amazing fiction. Well, I think Ben was five when I... <laughs> yeah. That and Lord of the Rings we were reading. Uh, but in right, any case, yeah, um, yeah. now in ensuing years, and I Lovecraft passed in 1937, and he almost his fiction almost uh, was lost were it not for August Gerleth, who was a, a Wisconsin writer and a young correspondent of his, a lot younger than Lovecraft, who, in my opinion, was a, a, he was prolific. But and I'm not wildly excited about his writing. But thanks to him, he started a, he started a publishing house that preserved. Lovecraft's work and it, it caught on. There was a big explosion of it in the '60s. You know when I started to read it, and then, and then of course that's really never stopped. So, right. uh, but in ensuing years, uh, Niels, there have been people who have, be, and we're going to have to deal with this, I'm afraid, who have become convinced that Lovecraft's scientific materialism, and he's very clear in all his letters that he was an atheist, uh, a scientific materialist. In other words, he didn't think there was anything in the world beyond uh, matter. Uh, a lot of people think that was a sham and that he really was in touch with cosmic outsideness because he had to have been to write as powerfully as he did. Uh, right. weird, weird gods and books like the Necronomicon, which the conference is named after, I guess, a play on words, and that those books are real. They, a couple of them have even been published. What's your opinion of that? Remember, remember, oh, yeah. this is FCC-regulated radio, so watch your language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be careful in my choice of words. Um, it, it's obviously, I think, a testament to his uh, imaginative uh, capacity for, for spinning an amazing yarn. Uh, and you know, I think part of it, going back to the what you said about his knowledge, history, and architecture, and such, he was, you know, like I'd mentioned before, a, a great devourer of knowledge, and was literally a walk encyclopedia of New England history and architecture. And all of these things, when he weaves them into his tale, makes a truly believable tale that then, you know, you sprinkle on top of that the mythology that he created, the fictional mythology, it makes it that much more believable. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It makes it in the, in the style of a memoir of somebody that truly experienced these horrors. And so I think it makes it very easy for people to believe that, you know, he must be drawing on something more than just in his imagination. Yeah, you know, there's a certain amount of wish fulfillment too. I think too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think everyone obviously wants to believe in something bigger than they can just be, you know, and that's an understandable human desire. I mean, that's yeah, in our culture since the dawn of humanity. But well, I certainly do, but not Yogg's Thoth and guys like that. Right. I, I would hope not. I yeah. Hope not. No. All that being said, uh, Lovecraft in his later years expressed an interest in quantum physics, and I always respected him because he. He was able to change when he got better information as he got older. He didn't just stick to his old beliefs. He, you know, he modified, inform, you know, his beliefs as he gained information. Such as he's often known as as a, as a renowned racist. And uh, but right. but by the time he got to the end of his life, he he married a Jewish woman, and he uh, w- was able to uh, modify those beliefs to. Uh, widen his circle of friends to include many, many people, and uh, it was it was a really wonderful thing to see, especially in those times. Now, uh, Lovecraft in his later years, as I say, expressed an interest in quantum physics in his, several of his letters, anyway. Which in later in later years, after he left us, has in many interpretations, anyway, pretty much blown scientific materialism out of the water in many ways. One of the aspects of quantum theory is this multiple worlds interpretation, or MWI, which we consider, we being Ben and myself, key to understanding what the paranormal is really about. 
Now, granted that alternate universes or parallel worlds have been known as themes in literature since at least the 18th century, uh, now, but Lovecraft seems to 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 us, I don't know, but kind of hits us, hits us between the eyes with it, with themes like these elder gods and walking, as in, in his words, between the worlds, and especially in the Randolph Carter stories, which is a, a series of stories that he wrote in the uh, late, well, well, actually early, late 20s, early 30s, am I right? Yes, yeah, I believe so. Okay. Yeah. Now, in Through the Gates of the Silver Key, admittedly written mostly by his friend E. Hoffman Price in 1932, they, they collaborated, they were friends, there was a brilliant description of human, what we call human super life in the multiverse, and that roots, uh, the roots of that theory didn't come about until Hugh Everett wrote a doctoral thesis about it at Princeton in 1957. Uh, what was it, Price or Lovecraft here, kind of putting two and two together with what was known about quantum physics at the time? Because this is only speculation. But what are your thoughts on that? I know, as I say, it's only speculation. I, well, I think, I mean, I think that, again, that goes back to him being just somebody who constantly would stop reading the latest science that was out there, sometimes for better or worse. Yeah, uh, right, right. And, and he, you know, so he was certainly aware of, you know, for example, likely aware of um, impacts of radiation from some of the early experiments with radiation. So, so we see that infuse his story, The Color Out of Space, which oh, yes. is a description of the impact of radiation. Often considered his best story. Nagasaki. Yeah, and it, certainly it's one of his best stories, and it's just a great science fiction story, you know, ahead of its time. But, uh, but so the, the fact that he would, you know, touch on multiverse concepts um, using quantum physics as, as it was understood at that time um, is it, obviously, I mean, that, that really makes sense that he would do that considering how, how enamored he was with the latest science. You know, of course, the downside is that, that some of the latest science at the time was complete rubbish. Sure. <laughs> uh, phrenol- phrenology, for example, was a science that unfortunately probably bolstered his racism. And, yeah, well, that was the age of eugenics, was, too. Right, exactly, and that was, that was the height of that, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so, so that, you know, it works both ways. I mean, I think it, it made him an incredibly informed person, but it didn't always make him... Uh, correctly informed. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things, and I, I recently reread this story. Uh, there's, uh, and it, perhaps it goes on too long, but in the Gates of the Silver Key, there, there's a long uh, exposition on this Randolph Carter character who has disappeared, and his estate is being uh, probated, I guess you might say. And because uh, he's been gone for what is it three years, and people assume he's dead. What he's actually done is is go back through time using this silver key to his boyhood, something Lovecraft always wanted to do. Right. And um, the, it, the, there's a long exposition by this strange uh, figure. Because I guess I guess uh, Indian culture was not his forte, and uh, nor was it that of of Price, because they have a guy dressed like a Sikh and referring to him as, as a Hindu and you know, all this kind of business. But what he's at, he's actually an alien from um, uh, another planet who is a, a facet, in the multiverse sense, I guess, of Randolph Carter. And Carter has found it impossible to get back into his human form and has uh, somehow come back to Earth in a, you know, I believe it's, uh, they refer to it as a light envelope, something that is currently being speculated upon by... Uh, the more advanced astrophysicist, and uh, has has found himself in this room with these people trying to save his own estate because he wants to get back to Boston, which he loves very much, and et cetera, et cetera. But it refers to him as the the, the Carter facet, and the uh, um, the fa- I can't remember the name of the the alien here, but 
anyway, the, the different facets of the guy and how he learns from these gods uh, how he is um, really just a facet of in, existing in many different times and, and places and all this stuff. Very, very multiverse stuff taken to its logical or, or less than logical conclusion. And uh, oddly enough, in 42 years of paranormal research, which I've tried to do from a, with my feet on the ground, not, not like this nonsense you see on television, uh, and, and working with, with uh, within the realm of well, what what can't whatever science you can apply to that. Um, it's it's weird. Those are the same conclusions I've come to, and it's not just because I read the story a long time ago. It's right. because it it seems that uh, human relationships within the multiverse, you know, it, should it exist that way, would uh, imply exactly what is written in this story, which uh, really struck me because it was written twenty years before, more than twenty years before uh, that theory was actually promulgated. But again, maybe coincidence. But I, but I think that you have a point. Uh, as you say, that Lovecraft kept himself up on the, the most recent science. Uh, he was yeah. a great devotee of uh, astronomy, particularly in his earliest years and his and his last years. And uh, yeah, that, all, that all could explain it. All yeah, all through. Yeah, all that, through, that could explain it. Sure, exactly. I mean, so, he, he was he was publishing he was publishing his own uh, amateur astronomy journals when he was ten years old. Which that's right. Yeah. I did. Some, I actually did some research on that. He wrote for the Patuxent Valley Gleaner, which was a, is a, now a paper that is non-existent. But I was uh, writing a book on Rhode Island newspaper history in 1992, and I actually found uh, um, what what we call in journalism a morgue. Uh, in other words, uh, old copies of of newspapers and. The Patuxent Valley Gleaner was in there. This is this is at, at the the paper that that won the uh, competition at the time, the Patuxent Valley Daily Times, now the Kent County Daily Times, and there were actually old copies of the Gleaner in there, and there were some of Lovecraft's um, astronomy articles. I don't know if people realize that those things are still there. Oh, I, I probably people do. I mean, there's some people that you know dedicate their every every waking second daunting things like that down. That's right. But yeah, he has something of a cult figure. There are. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, there are so many things out there. I mean, honestly, I don't know how the fellow slept. He uh, was so incredibly prolific with his personal letters. And oh, yes. Submissions to journals, and, you know, nonfiction and fiction. Uh, I mean, they have, I think they have, what, uh, 20,000 personal letters or something like that. Oh, easily. Yeah. Out there. I mean, that's well, my mother hard. insists, or insisted before she passed away, that my father corresponded with Lovecraft, and he was like a sixth cousin through the Whipple family. I don't know if they realized that, but he, she insisted that she, uh, that they corresponded for a while, because my father was a big fan. He had, a, he had a complete collection of weird tales, start to finish from the, I don't know when it started, 1918 or something, all the way through 1952 or three. Uh, which she threw away after he died. Oh, you know, anything you wanted me to hate my mother might have been that. Right. <laughs> of course. But, uh, and of course, there's no sign of any of the letters. But, but according to her, because, uh, <clears throat> you know, they, they had the same interest. My father didn't really know him, but, but corresponded and had the same interest in astronomy, in uh, strange things, weird tales, and he had a huge scrapbook on uh, how the world might end. You know, cheerful stuff. But in any case... Um, that that's as far as we could get with that, and I, I don't know even if it's if it's true. But she she was usually a pretty accurate person. Anyway, um, with Lovecraft's imagination and inner life, and again, this is mere speculation. Do you think he might have wished he could believe in a reality beyond the material? Because that's the impression I kind of got from my mother. Yeah, that's a good question. 
you know, he he was so wrapped up in it. I mean, he, he you know, describes his wanderings around the streets of Providence and, you know, Quebec City and all the other places that he went to. And he talks about them being, you know, shrouded and haunted and things. And the way he writes about them, it, it seems like he's just a half a step away from being the most sincere, dedicated believer in all the things that he then, you know, coldly rational says that he doesn't believe in. Yeah, you know, I think that's well put. Uh, I've known the most frustrated, and I've known three of them, the most frustrated people I've ever known were atheists who had a religious temperament. They were, they were right. kind of homo otterons, but they just, they, they just couldn't do it. And, and it was probably like Lovecraft because he was in this lousy Western theological mentality that was just, that I wouldn't believe in either, you know. I mean, and it's just he was probably frustrated yeah, yeah. by that. I tend to think. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I remember that he wrote in one of his letters that he, and of course, he used to, he grew up on Angel Street in Providence, and which is right near the Seekonk River, and uh, that area that's a park today was a park then, I believe, or was created during his early life. And he would go down there, and he would apparently he would uh, build a, a sort of a, you know woodland bower for himself, and he'd hang out in there. And he uh, insisted as far as I know, to his dying day, that he had a um, pagan religious experience of sorts in there. He believes that he actually had communed with the spirits of the trees. or the And, you know, because you never knew how serious he was in some right, of his letters. Right. But uh, I, I, I just... Yeah, he was, he was in a, a remarkable jokester. I mean, that's something that most people oh, don't exactly. quite realize about him. That it, it is definitely hard to say exactly what he truly believed were you to sit him down and ask him about it, but... Oh no, that's true. Well, certainly he'd put in jokes in his stories. I remember yeah, the the, exactly. uh, the Haunter of the Dark uh, was specifically built around Robert Block, who later became a writer for uh, for uh, books and television, including Star Trek. He wrote several Star Trek mm -hmm. scripts, and he wrote he wrote the screenplay for Psycho too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he did. But a good friend of Lovecraft's, a lot younger. And uh, supposedly the fellow in the story who gets attacked by the creature from the steeple, uh, you know, is in, living in what was at the time Lovecraft's house on Prospect Street and uh, was a, really a Robert Blake rather than Robert Blake, you know, because of thinly, yeah, exactly. thinly veiled in-jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, he wrote, I mean, so many of these stories that he wrote, he wrote for his friends that he was in regular correspondence with, mm -hmm. you know, and they all had, like, names for each other, like Clark Ashton Smith, who was a phenomenal writer of the time, a huge influence on Lovecraft and, and vice versa. You know, they had these pen names for each other, like Clark Ashton Smith with Clark Ash on. I mean, spelled right. in a very dramatic, kind of Conan the Barbarian sort of style, you know. And, mm -hmm. um, of course, Robert E. Howard was another fan. Yeah, who was friend. the author of Conan the Barbarian, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Interesting. What are your favorite Lovecraft stories? <laughs> That's a question I've obviously been getting asked quite a bit lately. Uh, actually, I've noticed the time. We're going to take a, a brief break here, and we'll okay. be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, minus the Ben tonight, unfortunately, on WON 1240 AM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our guest, Niels Hobbs. It's March, and Radio Squares is on the air. The WOON Valley Breeze Radio Squares contest continues all March long on your favorite local radio station and in all editions of the Valley Breeze newspapers. Find each week's Radio Squares game card printed in the living section of the Valley Breeze, available free at locations all over the Blackstone Valley. Keep it by your radio and listen to WOON 1240 all day long. Cross off the squares as we call them out on the air, and when you have a straight line of five squares crossed off in any direction, 
direction, phone W-O-O-N immediately at 762-1240. Be one of the first ten to do so, and each week we play, and you'll be qualified to play in the Radio Square Survival Round at noon on Saturday, March 30th, and the winner there will receive $500 cash prize. Complete game rules are printed on each game card. Game cards can also be downloaded free from the ValleyBreeze.com website. Each new game starts on Monday morning with Mike and Joe in the morning and continues until 10 qualify and the card is closed. Play Radio Squares all March long of the Valley Breeze newspapers and Owen Radio. And welcome back. And I do want to remind you that you can advertise on this show. Remember that we don't just have strange ghouls and gugs and gas listening to this show. There are people who are ordinary folks stuck in traffic at this time of day, of course, in the Boston Providence area. And we would uh, certainly want you to consider if you have a business of any kind, uh, particularly if you're a contractor or if you sell candles or dragon eggs or any- anything whatsoever, you can advertise on this show. It's not expensive. Check it out. Uh, we have packages that involve just ON, uh, packages that involve ON, and our CBS edition on Sunday nights. You can get national exposure that way. And uh, this is a national show, too, even on this station. So you get lots of exposure and local exposure here on Behind the Paranormal. Behindtheparanormal.com. Check check that out, and also check out the advertising link on that side. I'll tell you all about it. So let's get back to our guest, Niels Hobbs from the University of Rhode Island and organizer, one of the organizers of Necronomicon Lovecraft Conference in August. So let's get back to our question, Niels. You've had plenty of time to think about it now. What exactly are your favorite Lovecraft stories? Well, you know, there, there's a few that certainly stand out in particular to me that, uh, that fill certain needs that I have in reading a Lovecraft story. Um, and probably one of the ones that really stands out to me is At Mountains of Madness, which is ah. one of the longer tales. Uh, and, and the thing that I really enjoy about it the most is that it truly shows his complete adoration of science and for, for exploration, you know, written in the 30s when, you know, scientific exploration of the world really kind of closing all the final frontiers on the planet. Um, and it's just a phenomenal sort of mythology story. It's a very important one for his overall methods, uh, kind of really explain great deal. Um, it's, it's quite an effective. That's that's probably my favorite one. But then I also really enjoy the one that you mentioned earlier, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is such a great local story. Anybody that lives in Providence absolutely should read that story. Um, it, it has so much of, local, uh, of Providence architecture and Rhode Island history in it. Uh, it really is a walking tour guide for Providence or Rhode Island. Inside the remarkable horror story as well. Um, that's, that's probably those two are really kind of two that I most. You know, the ending is a big story. The book kind of finding is here. Yeah, kind of fading in and out again there. Uh, okay, but but uh, go go ahead, just kind of take it slowly. Okay. It's it's an electronic yeah. problem. It's not you. Okay, some some of the earlier works. Uh, are definitely not quite as good. I mean, I think he's still developing his skills as a writer. But um, but once you get into his later fiction where he gets a little bit more comfortable with his prose, he's not trying to show off quite much, um, that's when the sort of the narrative really stands out. Um, those, are, those are the better ones. Mm-hmm. Well, I always, uh, anyone who lives in, in the area, too, would, would certainly enjoy uh, the um, shunned house 
which actually, yeah, which actually exists on Benefit Street in Providence. And uh, w- one of the legends, and, and this is really true. And I was writing uh, my history of Rhode Island with Glenn Laxton. Uh, we actually, I, I actually put in a chapter on Lovecraft and uh, mentioned this. There is a legend that some that a woman went crazy and it was screaming in French from an upstairs window of this house on Benefit Street. And uh, as far as I know, that that there is some some truth to that. And if you go by the house today. You can see it just as Lovecraft described it, and there there were signs yeah. in French uh, yeah. warning you against the dog, Chien lunatique, you know, and, was, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. All, all that sort of thing. <laughs> so there there is a certain spirit of Lovecraft that's certainly uh, alive in Providence. Yeah, it's it's really hard to miss. I mean, there's there's some neighborhoods that I think you can you you know without playing it up too much, you can really still feel the spirit of Lovecraft wandering around. Um, and yeah. I think Lovecraft himself would be thrilled so much of Providence still intact the way he would have remembered it. Well, uh, and it's also worth mm-hmm. noting, actually, that part of that, to some extent, is, is thanks to him. He was a very early preservationist in Providence before that was really kind of a movement or a concept. Uh, he was constantly arguing to preserve certain old pieces of architecture and decrying some of the sort of more modern styles that were coming in. Exactly. Well, if he could have seen what happened to Hartford and what happened to Providence, and I grew up in the Hartford area, and uh, in the 1960s, urban renewal came in, and it was just a catastrophe from from Lovecraft's point of view and anyone who has any appreciation. They hadn't yet dawned on them that they didn't have to tear down historic buildings and replace them with glass and steel at right angles. Uh, all they really had to do was, was put a little love and effort into it and restore buildings to, to their former glory, which is what was done in Providence, most of it, Precisely. anyway, uh, at the behest of, of wonderful people like Antoinette Downing, uh, right. great preservationist, and uh, he would have been absolutely delighted to see it today, because it actually was rather run down in his day. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was coming yeah. Exactly. Well, he, he, he died when essentially the, the Depression was still going on. Right. You know, I think it's only, you know, our Providence really benefited from many, the efforts of many preservationists, but also benefited being a little bit for the town for urban renewal. So when all these other cities were getting their old, happy old buildings in our town, uh, Providence uh, had the luxury of still having someone to survive through and now you know, become venerated pieces of architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's switch gears a little bit there, Niels. Uh, if, if someone is a young person or, or a person of any age who wants to uh, start, is interested in Lovecraft, would like to start reading, what's, what, what is the first story you would suggest that they, that they begin with? Uh, you know, the first story, I think, probably jump right to his most famous story, which is The Call of Cthulhu. Right. Uh, that's the story where it's a very quick read. It's only about 25 or a few more pages and it has a number of different elements that are common to his style of writing. Um, you know, very detailed kind of memoirist style of writing, a great exploration of, you know, a good dabbling some of the horrors that are presented out there. Um, and it, it's a, like a quick read, gives you a little bit of everything, and it's also one that goes up in almost every kind of, every collection of Lovecraftian stories out there. Yeah. Well, certainly, it's also one that has recently been uh, been made into a phenomenal uh, adaptation. Silent, recently, a silent film was made. I, I have that. It's it is really great. Yeah. yeah, 
The Call of Cthulhu. I, I defy. How you pronounce that is another. Uh, <laughs> I grew up calling it well, Cthulhu, but it's C T H H U L U something like. I don't know. Uh, yeah, right, right. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to say or spell, and it's meant to be that way. I mean, that exactly. Was yeah. Lovecraft purposefully shows this sort of alien language that wasn't pronounceable by human vocal cords. You know, and that's again, absolutely that's kind of his realism. Well, that's another thing because on, on the show too, we deal with the UFO business and and uh, aliens or whatever they may be, and and you know our um our our two slogans kind of on the show are, are everything you know is wrong, and nothing in the paranormal is what it appears to be. Yeah, you know, there's always some other explanation, not some other explanation, but it's it's well the third slogan I guess would be uh, it's it's not explaining the paranormal, it's the problem, it's handling the explanations. So uh, as a result, so whether I, I believe all those three are true, but uh, in the the uh, the realm of the alien, uh, at the, in Lovecraft's time when that was uh, a theme of any particular story or anything or movie uh, later on, uh, they were all very human. You know, uh, everybody spoke English, and it, just, it wasn't anything alien about it at all. Exactly. And uh, exactly. Lovecraft and really now. Yeah, I suppose you're right. It does. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and uh, you, you, no, go ahead. That's one of. That's one of the things that I really enjoy about Lovecraft's fiction is his uh, created mythology because it deals with the, with the exception of Cthulhu, uh, which is his kind of most famous character, which is a very anthropomorphic character. You know, it has two arms and two legs and a head. Almost all of the rest of the creatures are not the kind of creatures you see in a typical Hollywood or Hollywood sci-fi movie. They're far more imaginative than that. Um, and and me personally, as a marine biologist, they appeal to me because they're far more representative of the kind of bizarre creatures we have right here on our own planet mm-hmm. that don't get made into Hollywood movies, or don't show up in Hollywood horror movies. Um, I'm always disappointed when I go see a science fiction movie and the alien, the guy in a suit, basically. <laughs> like yeah. The classic Star Trek thing where they just kind of have some prosthetic on their nose or something like that. Exactly, that's, or funny-looking heads. Not, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you, you calculate in, you know, now we know that there's probably something like a hundred billion planets in our galaxy alone that are, could be comparable to Earth. Sure. You, you figure the chances are of all of those, you know, potentially alien races out there looking just like us, it's pretty ridiculous. You know, I mean, it's pretty low. So. Yeah. That's, well. That's the credit I give to Lovecraft for this. No, I agree. Uh, we often have, uh, eminent UFO experts on the show, uh, and it's like, you know, they, they don't seem to have, uh, some of them at least don't seem to have a grasp of this, because we'll ask them, suppose UFOs are not craft from other planets, you know, nuts and bolts stuff, suppose it's this, that, or the other thing, or suppose it's something that is simply outside our frame of reference, outside our intellectual and scientific framework. And they, most of them don't seem to be able to deal with that. They, they act as though they've never thought of it before. But Lovecraft thought of it a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, mean, I think I think that Lovecraft's strength is he is a remarkable blend of both a, a, an incredibly cold rationalist, but at the same time also this imaginative, very artistic individual. And sort of that nexus of those two sort of disparate strengths, I think, is what makes him a remarkable visionary writer. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, th- that's the thing. I think you really put your finger on it. You, you've got a, a very feet on the ground kind of a kind of a writer. Uh, the atmosphere, and he was big on atmosphere, and the, this, the scenery is down to, you know, Providence, College Hill, or, or, or Massachusetts, or rural areas of New England, places we all know, uh, unless you live in California, which we have listeners there too, but, 
uh, anyway, it, 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 he he just takes that and, and he, he introduces this entirely alien environment and concepts into this very sort of workaday environment, and that I think is what is where a lot of the power is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, okay. Well, before we uh, run out of time here, tell us about the conference in uh, August and what's going on, and where can people get more information. Great. Yeah. Uh, so, so the conference is um, some of us in Providence deciding that there's simply not enough uh, of a presence of Lovecraft in Providence, and uh, we're resurrecting the convention that used to be held uh, every other year up until 2001, and it kind of just ran out of time, unfortunately. Um, so we're resurrected this summer, August 22nd to the 25th, and it's primarily going to be a literary conference, uh, an academic exploration of all things Lovecraftian, uh, discussing his writing, life, his, uh, his collaborators, the various authors that influenced him and, and come after him, and it, as well as through this scholarly uh, conference, it's also going to be a very large statewide festival. Well, you know, allowing people to get out in Providence, exploring all sorts of aspects of Providence itself. Um, we'll be having a, a gaming component. Um, we'll be doing film series. For the entire month, we'll actually be having a few art exhibitions run around Providence that are going to highlight a number of artists that have been influenced by his work, which is not a surprise, of course. Uh, and it'll just be a phenomenal experience for anybody that mostly a Lovecraft fan uh, or a fan of weird fiction. Uh, and we're really hoping it will also be a great opportunity to highlight the city that Lovecraft loved so much. Excellent. Well, I, I um, hope we can get you into the studio next time. We want to do several shows leading up to the conference uh, to help pu- publicize it. And uh, if you'd like, you know, even on our CBS edition, I mean, you know, who knows? It certainly is of national interest. Um, so, okay, Niels Hobbs, everybody, University of Rhode Island. And uh, Niels, hopefully we'll have you, as I say, in the studio next time because this wasn't the greatest connection. Uh, no, I apologize for that. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank okay, so but, much. but thank you, and we'll be in touch. And thanks, uh, and continue uh, with the great work toward the conference. We can't wait uh, wait to get to it. Great. I appreciate it, Paul. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. Niels Hobbs, University of Rhode Island. We'll have him back. <clears throat> okay. Let's, uh, okay. So we've got time for maybe one, uh, one letter here. We're going to, we're planning a show on a funny thing called synchronicity. And, uh, I'll tell you what that is in a minute, but, uh, this, this is from Dale, Dale Barringer in Waterfleet, New York. And Dale asks, and we always ask people to keep their letters short. How does synchronicity, synchronicity fit in with your multiverse theories? That's short enough? Yes, Dale, that's short enough. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, my answer will not be. Uh, synchronicity, essentially, is when two or more seemingly unrelated or unlikely events take place at the same time and together bring about a certain result. You might, some people call it coincidence, but synchronicity often goes beyond coincidence. Synchronicity implies that Things take place not only by cause, but by meaning. In other words, events take place because another event has caused them, like your house might fall down because termites ate it, or events might take place simply because they need to. There is another concept first spelled out in modern times by Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist who was a, and psychologist who was a, 
student started out with uh, Sigmund Freud, but really thought Freud was kind of off the deep end there and started his own kind of school of thought on that. Uh, anyway, he talked about synchronicity in the 1920s. His actual definition of that was, quote, temporally coincident occurrences of a-causal events, unquote. Jung's idea is that minds are related to each other, sounds like kind of our multiverse idea, especially through concepts and the relationships among concepts. Now, Jung said that's uh, that it's this relationship that creates synchronicity, minds working together to create meaningful events. Kind of cool, I think. This has been interpreted, especially by New Age types, as the real meaning behind fate or destiny. You often hear people talking about that. And uh, this has given rise to the idea of creating one's own reality. Uh, you hear that in New Age talk, too, especially among psychics. It has also given rise to the notion that someone or something else is pulling the strings in our lives and that we have no real control over events, kind of a determinism. Now, from where I sit, just the opposite may be true. In multiverse awareness, as Ben and I call it, you start to get in touch with all the other simultaneous lives you're living in this so-called multiverse, that vast network of alternate parallel universes that, in our experience, explains the paranormal, and we talked about that with our guest this evening. That includes lives where you are very recognizable to yourself, others in which you are a complete dunce, and still others in which you are a spiritual and intellectual giant. In some of those, you may be very aware that you need certain things to happen, so that you can get better in this facet of yourself, as Lovecraft might say. You might be in a position to positively influence your other lives, all of which make up the whole you and ultimately the whole us. You might be your own guardian angel. So the one influencing events might be very well your own subconscious. Personally, I think that explains synchronicity. Uh, sorry, Dale, that's as short as I can get. Um, there is, uh, I was talking about this with our producer before because he looks just like this guy, uh, an example here of a very interesting synchronistic event that occurred in uh, not, around about 1900 here. Now, King Umberto I of Italy, who bears an amazing resemblance to our producer Steve Bianchi, uh, I don't think he was as nice as Steve, nobody's as nice as Steve. Anyway, on July 28, 1900, uh, the king was in the city of Monza in Italy and decided to eat out. So he and his aide decided on a small restaurant. Naturally, everybody was excited, and the restaurant owner personally took the king's dinner order. Both men were shocked because they not only looked alike, they could have been identical twins. Now, it turned out that they had the same name, Umberto. It also turned out that they were born on the same day, March 14, 1844, in the same town. Both their wives were named Margarita, and both couples had married on the same day, and they both had a son named Vittorio. And it keeps going. They had both served in the Italian armed forces and had been promoted on the same day. King Umberto's coronation had taken place on the same day that the other Umberto had opened his restaurant. The king was so taken by all this that he invited the restaurant guy to visit him and the queen the next day. The king was horrified to receive word the next day that his new friend had been shot and killed in an accident that morning. There wasn't much time to mourn because that same day an assassin shot King Umberto through the heart and killed him. So both men ended up dying on the same day, July 29th, 1900. How's that for synchronicity? Now there are a couple of stories that Freud himself kind of liked when it came to, uh, to synchronicities. 
uh, he talked about the experience of one of his patients. And this is a quote. A young woman I was treating, and as I say, he was a psychiatrist slash psychologist in the early days of that science. A young woman I was treating had, at a critical moment, a dream in which she was given a golden scarab. Now, a scarab is like a beetle, and you see that in Egyptian art, a dung beetle or whatever, some kind of, any, but a lot of people in Europe would call it a scarab, uh, just the insect itself. While she was telling me this dream, I sat with my back to the closed window. Suddenly, I heard a noise behind me like a gentle tapping. I turned round and saw a flying insect knocking against the window pane from the outside. I opened the window and caught the creature in the air as it flew in. It was the nearest analogy to a golden scarab one finds in our latitudes. This is in Switzerland, by the way. Uh, a scarabade beetle, the common rose chafer, as they call it there which, contrary to its usual habits, had evidently felt the urge to get into a dark room at this particular moment. I must admit that nothing like it had ever happened to me before or since. And you wonder, you know, meaningful things that need to happen, well, so what if the beetle comes knocking at your window? Well, I don't know. There may be larger factors here. You've heard the, uh, maybe, the idea that if a butterfly flaps its wings in China, it can create turbulence in the air that can end up a big storm in North America. Words to that effect. Everything affects everything else. And uh, as we believe, not only in the world, but in the multiverse too. So uh, th whatever this, this happened was happening, if it indeed was a, a something synchronistic or not just a, you know, just a coincidence, then it may have had some meaning. Now, in his memoirs, there was a, the French writer Emile Deschamps says that in 1805 he was in a restaurant and he met a friendly stranger who brought him uh, some, who bought him some plum pudding. Ten years later, Deschamps was in another Paris restaurant and ordered some plum pudding, but the waiter told him that they were all out and that the last of it had gone to another diner, who turned out to be the same guy who had treated Deschamps to the plum pudding ten years earlier. And there's more. A long time afterward, in 1832, Deschamps was at a diner with some of his cronies and told them about the plum pudding coincidence. He then ordered it again. And who comes hobbling into the room at that very moment but the original plum pudding guy from, from all these years before? Uh, this guy was old as dirt by that time, but nevertheless, he was right there on the hoof. So, synchronicity, folks. Uh, and so, uh, in preparation for this show, we'd like to certainly ask you to write in about any events like that have, that have occurred. Uh, I remember that uh, I was once in Virginia with my family, with Ben and his, his brother and, and, and my lovely wife, and we were uh, on our way back from uh, Washington. I should say we were on our way back from, South, back from South Carolina, where most of her people live. And we had stopped in Richmond, Virginia, uh, for the evening at, at a hotel. And we just nonchalantly walked into a restaurant, never been there before, never heard of it before. And I was... Uh, Take, actually, no, ben, ben was not with us. This is before he was born. Okay. So it was Ben's older brother, and he was young, and I, there was a big fish tank across the room, so I took him by the hand, and we went over. All of a sudden, I heard, hey, Paul. I turned around. It was my cousin from Windsor Locks, Connecticut, who, with whom I'm very close, more like a brother. And uh, I, what he was doing at the same restaurant at the same time as we were on the same day was just bizarre. Actually, he was on his way south to sue his brother over his mother's estate, so it was not a pleasant thing to do. But nevertheless, it was an incredible coincidence. Probably that one of the most remarkable of that kind that I've heard was a, a good friend of mine from Smithfield, the owner of a business down there, was traveling in Scotland, and they went to the Isle of Skye, which is a, pretty much off, off the beaten path. 
they were in the middle of nowhere on the island of Skye, and he and his wife were walking up an old path to an old inn that had like four tables in it to have a, have lunch. And they went in, and a guy says, hey, Jack. He turns around. It was another guy from Smithfield who happened to be in the same restaurant on the Isle of Skye at the same time on the same day. And uh, I, I just and I see this fellow all the time, and I, I just I, I never get over that story. So uh, if you have stories like that, certainly let us know, and we'll, we'll put together a great show for you on that. And that'll be, uh, I don't know, in a couple of weeks anyway. Maybe here, maybe on CBS, but we'll let you know. And uh, what, what we would ask you to do is if you can email, uh, certainly write to paul at behindtheparanormal.com or ben at behindtheparanormal.com. And uh, just you know, let us know what it is. Uh, Tell us, try to keep it short, but tell us the complete story, whatever strange things have happened to you in, the, in the regards uh, to synchronicity. Uh, also, you can use, uh, there's a form, uh, you can use an online form on our website, behindtheparanormal.com, and you certainly would be able to use that and uh, send it to us that way. Or write a good old-fashioned letter to us here at WON, and you can write to uh, Paul and Ben Eno uh, or Behind the Paranormal Radio, care of WON, 1240 a.m., at 985 Park Avenue, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, 02895. And uh, we've got just two minutes left, so I guess that's about it. You, you, that's good. You, he'll, he holds up the little things to tell me what's going on, because I have no idea what's going on. Well, right, neither you, do I. Okay, well, good. That, that's yeah, a lot coming from the, that, 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 Okay. That gives you a lot of confidence. It does, it does. So, again, uh, we will have uh, Niels um, Hobbs back. Uh, at some point, uh, certainly very soon, to uh, try to get him in the studio here so we have a better connection. Talk about Necronomicon Providence and H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I started out reading some of the stories. I think one of the most beautiful ones is is uh, certainly The White Ship. It's a lovely little fable that will, uh, it's not horrible at all, and it'll get you into some of his parallel world stuff, and I find it very interesting. So anyway, uh, I, we wanted to point out, of course, again, BehindTheParanormal.com. Find out about guests, past, present, and future. You can buy my books, subscribe to our newsletter, or become a reporter for the show. Uh, and there are also nearly 450 free podcasts uh, on that site, the, uh, both our shows here and on CBS. So check it out. Many thanks to our producer this evening, Steve Bianchi, who, as I said, bears a great resemblance to King Umberto. And on our March 18th show next week, I will finally do that long-awaited show on the paranormal lives of the saints, including Woonsocket's own Marie Rose Farron. On our CBS radio edition on March 17th, Ben and I will welcome our old friend, the author Diurlon, to discuss the coming weird world of 3D printing and, very coincidentally, with the papal election this week, uh, the um, prophecy of St. Malachi. So we're done. Check us out again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.